Well, Redeemer Church, it's wonderful to be together on Sundays, and just so glad to be here with you today. If you're new, I'm Pastor Dave, and we welcome you. We hope we get to see you again next Sunday as well. Uh, church members, just a, a bit of a reminder that after this service, we have our next members meeting. It'll be right here in this room. We'll start at 12.45 p.m. at the latest. And so linger around and kind of move up into the, kind of the first three sections, and we'll have our next members meeting. It'll be a shorter one. It'll be about 45 minutes uh, to an hour. And we'll keep it that short so you could go out to lunch uh, afterwards and it won't go too late. But please don't miss the meeting. We have three elder candidates that we're going to nominate to you that we're really excited about along with other uh, just Redeemer family matters. And so please stick around for that. Also a prayer request, the Gulf Theological Seminary, which was birthed here out of Redeemer Church nine years ago. Uh, we've since the start seen dozens of classes, several uh, graduating groups. We've started a new campus in Abu Dhabi. We have live classes going on at times in places like Kuwait City and in Doha. And so the Lord has done many exciting things. Well, next week, this is what the prayer request is. Next week, we have an accrediting body coming to Dubai and Abu Dhabi to assess the Gulf Theological Seminary for official accreditation. Now, this would be amazing because as far as we know, uh, if all goes according to plan, GTS would become the first official accredited seminary in the history of the Arabian Peninsula. And so please do pray for next week and pray for that visit as the accreditors meet with students and staff and faculty and the board and spend time here in Dubai and in Abu Dhabi. Uh, many have worked hard to prepare, but I just wanted to thank and praise God uh, for two people in particular. We've had our staff work really hard. We've had our faculty, many of which are in this room, uh, work really hard. But just two people in particular, Pastor John Butchen, uh, who I see over here, uh, has led our accrediting efforts for really the past three years or so. And just to give you a little taste of the hard work involved, all that uh, put together um, in terms of various uh, forms, various documents. We have a, an over 300-page document that has been put together for the accreditors. So really, really thankful for Pastor John Butchen, thankful for uh, his relentless work and preparation over these years that have led us to this week. So thank you, brother. Also thankful for our president, Pastor Eric Zeller, who's also sitting uh, to your left, to my right. Our seminary president, he's provided leadership for the seminary. So what began nine years ago as a dream, as a series of week-long intensive classes under his leadership has, has turned into vision, strategy, uh, and leadership and preparation uh, for what's to come this week. I know there's others. Uh, Dr. TJ's in this room, one of our uh, faculty. I see Trey O'Rear, one of our board members, and there's probably, there's other faculty, staff. I see some graduates. I see Elise, and I'm sure others. And so this is just really a landmark week, so we want to pray for that uh, now. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the member meeting coming up today. Would we conduct matters in a manner worthy of the gospel? We also just pray for the preaching of Romans. Lord, would your word do the work today? And Father, for this week coming up, Lord, would it be a fruitful week with the seminary accreditors? 
May the board, faculty, staff, and students be discerning and prayerful as we answer questions and are evaluated. Father, could we celebrate next week a good visit and then eventually accreditation? Father, would you continue to use GTS to raise up pastors and leaders throughout the region and beyond to serve your kingdom? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. If you haven't turned there, you can turn there in your Bibles or in the bulletin. It's our third sermon in this glorious chapter. Our text breaks up into two points, so if you're taking notes, two points, they'll serve as our outline. Number one, our obligation. Number two, our identity. Obligation and identity. Let's begin with number one, our obligation. Look at verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. So then, so then we have a conclusion here from what we read in previous verses. Our main point in verses 5 through 11, remember the last sermon in Romans, the main point was this, the life in the flesh leads to death and hostility, while life in the spirit leads to life and peace. We saw that there were two ways to live. You're either living or you're dying. There's nothing in between. You can't live a little, be somewhat alive, be partially dead. No, you're either dead or you're alive. And Paul says to the Romans church, actually, for you, you can't live according to the flesh. Why? Well, because you're debtors. We're under obligation. We can't help but obey. Now, unfortunately, many of us can relate to being a debtor or having debt here in Dubai. Either we've struggled with debt or someone close to us has struggled with debt. When you're in debt in Dubai, you're, you're bound. You're bound to the creditors or you're, you're bound to the bank. You may get a travel ban and not be allowed to leave the country. If you don't pay your debt on time, it grows larger and larger through interest. Many come to the UAE with dreams of making more money than they could imagine, only to acquire more debt than they ever thought possible. We've either been in those shoes or know those who have been in those shoes. The debt binds us to the one we owe. Paul is saying here that Christians are debtors. What's this debt or obligation? Well, we used to be in debt to the flesh bound to sin, but something's happened to us, and now we have a new obligation not to live according to our sinful flesh. We, we as Christians, have life in the Spirit, a new obligation. This debt is to live a, a righteous life. It's to live according to the Spirit. Remember last time we discussed this wonderful practical and theological concept that as Christians we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. That somehow, miraculously, the Holy Spirit lives within us as believers. To be a Christian means to be in debt to the Spirit, to live a 
spiritual life. This is important because look at verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. Living apart from the Spirit leads to death. But Christians, not on our own, but by and through the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body and live. This is called the mortification of sin. That's a big word, but it just means the killing of sin. Mortification means death. Putting something to death. So how do we put to death the deeds of the body? Let me just pause and give us four applications. I could give us 400 applications or even 4,000 ways that we could put to death the deeds of the body. Let me just offer four suggestions. Number one, we remember the cost of the gospel. You put to death the deeds of the flesh by looking to the past, remembering what Christ has done. We recall what Jesus did for us by redeeming us through his death on the cross and resurrection from the dead. We can pay a debt of righteousness to him when we see that Jesus paid it all, that Jesus paid it all by giving up his life. We must then set our minds not on things below, but on things above. If we put rubbish in our minds, it'll be rubbish in our hearts, it'll be rubbish in our words and rubbish in our actions. What we fill our minds with will determine the direction of our lives. My old seminary professor, Dr. John Hanna, would say that what we value most isn't necessarily what we spend the most time doing. Well, that can't be true because oftentimes the thing we do most is sleeping or maybe going about our work. He said, no, what we value most isn't necessarily what we spend the most time doing, but what we generally think about throughout the day. So friend, I ask you, what do you think about? What do you think about when you have nothing to think about? What do you spend time thinking, processing, dwelling on? Now, as Christians, we never move beyond the gospel. We certainly learn more things, but the gospel is not just for non-Christians or new Christians. The gospel is for all Christians in all places at all times. There's no greater reality than being saved from sin and death through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. The very foundation of killing our sin must start with looking at the one who ultimately crushed sin on our behalf. Only in living in, remembering, and thinking about this reality do we have hope against sin in this life. We remember the cost of the gospel, the fact that Jesus Christ had to die for you and me. Friends, that means that we're pretty messed up people. That he had to go to such great lengths. It's astounding what God did. God the Father sending God the Son to die in our place. T.A. Carson says the cross criticizes us more than anyone else can. 
Just to think about it, the fact that our Savior died on the cross means we needed help. We needed more than help. We needed to be brought from death to life. And so we dig deeper and deeper into this truth. We study the Bible. We study theology. Some of us go on to GTS and study formally. We read good books. We encourage each other in truth. Colossians 3, 2. We, we set our minds on things above. That's what Christians do. What do you think about? Well, we think about things above, not on things on the earth. Number two, second area of application. We don't play games with sin. We don't play around with it. Friend, is there some sin, some area in your life that you are playing games with, that you are letting linger and not killing it? John Owen, the Puritan, famously said, be killing sin, or that sin will be killing you. Verse 13 is sobering. It's either death or life. Those are the options. The late Pastor John Stott said, there's a kind of life that leads to death, but there's a kind of death that leads to life. A death of sin, mortification of it. Killing sin leads to life. The word Paul uses here for kill, it's a strong word. Paul's not messing around. The word for kill here usually means to kill someone or to hand someone over to death. It's a strong word. The point, church, we must take sin Seriously. Are you playing games with your sin? Is there something you know right now, this Sunday morning, some sin that you know you should cut out, but instead of cutting it out, you're kind of eh, letting it linger and dabbling in it here or, or there? Is there some secret sin in your life? You've confessed it partially to a friend here and a friend there, but there's some secret sin that lies deep into this dark compartment of your heart that you've never shared with anyone. You know surfing the internet isn't good for you late at night or at certain times, but you grab your phone or tablet anyway. You struggle with gluttony. You know midnight snacks are not good for you, but you stock the fridge full of your favorite unhealthy snacks over and over again. You spend time with a certain group of friends, maybe at work or maybe at school, a group of friends that when you're around them, it leads to you having a foul mouth, saying bad words, slandering others, gossip, but you keep lingering with them. For whatever reason, not only do you not stop what's happening, you Take part in it. What is it for you? I could go on and on. Where are you struggling? What sin or sins are you playing around with? Paul says, don't play games with sin or it'll kill you. That leads to my third application. We work hard to kill sin. We work hard. We don't let sin go We don't sit back and let it go. We don't let it 
linger. We don't say we're going to kill it tomorrow or the next week. We seek to work hard at killing it today. Instead of playing games with it, we go on the offensive. Yes, we have the Spirit. We can only kill sin with the Spirit, but we must not be passive. We are responsible. We work. The Spirit works. And we ruthlessly reject sin. As one scholar has said, the Spirit gives us the desire, the determination, and the discipline to kill sin, but we must work. Holiness is hard. Fighting sin is hard. But we do it. We confess our sins to others. Not to everyone, but to some. Even that darkest part of our heart. We open up to God, to a fellow brother or sister in Christ. We get friends to ask us intentionally intrusive questions. We block sites on the internet. We throw away the alcohol if it makes us stumble. And we remind ourselves of how empty we feel after we sin. I mean, just think about it for a moment. Do you ever feel good after you sin? Well, even if it's for a little bit, eventually you feel horrible. And if it does feel good, what happens? Well, it doesn't last that long because you go ahead and contribute or act out that same sin again and again. Friends, sin never satisfies. We always go back to it. Sin never ultimately satisfies our hearts. It just doesn't. You never act out an act of greed or lust or slander or pride, and then you feel to yourself, ah, I feel fulfilled. No, it never satisfies. Sin is a lie, and Satan is a liar. You will never be satisfied by sin. Remind yourself of that. One of my former pastors always reminded us at the end of each staff meeting of the words of 1 Peter in his epistle that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I was on staff at this church as a small groups or community groups director. Every single staff meeting, Pastor Jeff would say, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And then he'd look at us and say, let it not be you. So Redeemer Church, I say that to you as well. Let it not be you. This is what Jesus means when he says in the Sermon on the Mount, cut out your eyes, cut off your hands if it makes you sin. Because Jesus, what he's saying and what Paul's saying here is we don't just cut off the symptoms of our sin or the consequences of it or the last step of it. No, we have to dig deep to the root of our sin. We have to get to the bottom of it, not just cutting off symptoms, but we need to trace the fruit of our sin to the root, cut it out, throw it away. And we need to do whatever it takes. So Jesus says, we don't literally cut out our eye or cut off our hand, but it means we go to that extreme at getting rid of it. We go to the root. We had an example of this in our home a couple years ago here in Dubai. We're moving to Murdoch this next week. We're looking forward to, to moving. We're going to miss our current place, but we're not going to miss everything about it. 
Some of you know a couple of years ago we had an odor problem in our home. It was a wretched smell. It was getting worse and worse. The summer heat made it horrible. We wanted to move away. We tried everything. Candles, air fresheners, the gel ones, the, the spray ones. We sprayed down our house with whatever we could find. The smell only worsened. Until finally an electrician went into the ceiling and there they were, three dead, decaying rats. And big rats, not the little small, cute little mice. These were big rats. That explained why nothing worked. No amount of effort and good smells could overcome the rats. We had the rats removed. We made sure that any branches from the trees were not touching our balcony. Gloria, my wife, even started being nice to the stray cats that were living in the neighborhood. But friends, trying to cover up the death or the smell of death is impossible. It won't work. Same thing with our sin. We could do all kinds of things to cover it up or or all kinds of things to treat the symptoms of it or all kinds of things to put a Band-Aid on it. But friends, that Band-Aid is eventually going to fall off. To fight sin, we must get to the root of it. We must put in hard work. Ultimately, we will fail if we don't get to the root. You need to remove the death, and so you go to the source of the problem. So why do you do what you do? Why do you do what you do? See, when you gossip or slander about someone, that's that's really not the fullness of the sin, is it? What's the sin beneath the sin? Okay, why are you prone to slander? Is it because you want to make yourself look good? Because you don't fear God, but you fear man? You're seeking your own reputation? Well, why are you seeking your own reputation? What's underneath that? What's underneath that? Why do you do what you do? Don't stop at the surface level sin. Get beneath that. Why do you do what you do? What's going on in your heart as you do those things? What are you seeking apart from God for fulfillment? What do you pray for? What are your prayers consumed with? What do you talk about? So maybe just think back to a week, and if we had a recording of everything you said, Over the last week, what consumes your conversations, your speech? Are there conversations about eternity? What are the things you talk about, and then why do you talk about it? Take some time this next week to think about why you do what you do. To think about areas you struggle with in sin. Why do I commit that sin? And what's the sin beneath the sin? Beneath the sin. We would all do well to take some time this upcoming week to reflect on these questions. Think about it and do whatever it takes to kill your sin at its root. Well, our fourth application, we kill the so-called respectable sins. We might consider these sins small, unimportant, envy, 
greed, covetousness. Ah, they're just little sins. They don't really hurt anybody, we think. The mortification of sin means we don't choose which sins are big enough to kill. We go after them all. We don't turn in an unacceptable receipt at work for reimbursement. We don't gossip behind someone's back. We don't cheat on that tough question on the exam, even though everyone else in the class is doing it. We don't take that second glance at that man or woman in a lustful way. I've said this before. This is probably obvious, but did you know that adultery doesn't just happen one day? You don't wake up in the morning, look at your calendar or diary, and see that you have nothing going on at 4 p.m. and think to yourself, self, I'm going to commit adultery today at 4 p.m. Nobody does that. Nobody has ever just done that. It's a thousand so-called respectable sins along the way. A thousand second glances. A thousand baby steps in the wrong direction until you fall off the cliff. Redeemer Church, we must be men, women, youth, tweens, and kids of integrity. We work, the Spirit works. We kill the so-called respectable sins because there are no respectable sins. All our sins before our holy God are reprehensible. That's our obligation. That's point number one we see in this text. We live spirit-filled lives killing sin. There's a second point this morning. And really we do the first because of the second. Number two, our identity. Our identity. Verse 14 for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. I've heard it said before that here we have the DNA of heaven. That's the way you can tell the real Christians. The reason they live, verse 14, is because they're sons. What makes us a son of God? Well, verse 14, it's having the Spirit of God. Being led by the Spirit of God here doesn't have to do with finding the right spouse or choosing the right job. Now, the Spirit helps us with those things. The Spirit is a, a helper and helps guide us, but that's not the context here. We need to see the, the context in connection with verse 13. It ties the two together. Our being led by the Spirit has to do with the same thing as the previous verse. It helps us to put to death the deeds of our sinful body. The Spirit leads us to hate sin and to love the things of God. This verse is both a promise and a practical means of assurance. Paul continues in verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The idea of sonship 
in this verse and in our passage is, is incredibly beautiful. And it's essential, don't miss this, it's essential that we keep the correct translation of sons here. You have to resist the temptation to say, oh no, it's sons and daughters, or it's men and women, or it's children. Now this translation is accurate and correct. We even sang of it in our first song this morning, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. In the third verse, we sang, See the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to glory, grace unmeasured, love untold. Paul's intentional here in that he says, Sons. In Rome... In those days, the concept of sonship was a privilege and a power given only to males. That's it. So here's what's amazing here as Paul is writing to Roman Christians, men, women, and children, and to all of us, that Paul now boldly applies that same truth of sonship to all believers. God doesn't distinguish in giving honor all Christians, male and female, are now sons, are now heirs. This is a huge claim. Paul's use of the word sons, it would have been scandalous. He's saying that in Christ, adoption is for all of us, men, women, and children, without distinction. The late pastor Tim Keller once wrote, and I love this, Christian women should not resent being called sons any more than Christian men should resent being called part of the body or part of the bride of Christ. I love that. Christians are all sons and all the bride. God is even-handed in his use of metaphors, and each metaphor tells us something about our relationship with Christ. Now, Paul could have chosen a different word here, could have chosen a neutral word for child, but this is intentional. He's making a point. Again, all of us have the status of sons in adoption. Women are sons of God because they are equal with men. Adoption was a standard legal procedure Back here in Roman times, it usually occurred when a wealthy heir had no one to pass his estate down. He would choose someone, could be a kid, a youth, even an adult. And when adoption occurred, several things were automatically true of that heir. First, all past debts were covered, taken care of, wiped clean. Second, they'd get a new name and a guaranteed inheritance as an heir. Third, the new father was now responsible for the heir's behavior. There's a, a deep connection. Fourth, the son now has new obligations to, to please the father. The image of adoption shows us a legal act that was started and 
finished by the Father. You can't go out and win a certain father. You can't buy a father. You can't negotiate for a certain parent. Adoption as a theological concept is a legal act on the part of God the Father. And it was very costly for him. After the sermon, the first song we're going to sing is How Deep is the Father's Love for Us. And oh, is it deep. It was costly. There's nothing we could have done to earn this status as sons. It was received through the payment of God's Son, Jesus, on the cross. Through the cross, God, the Father, He's purchased us and given us adoption papers. It's a glorious reality that now, if you're saved, you can call out, you can cry out to God the Father and say, Abba, Father. That Aramaic word, Abba, it means dear father, dad, daddy, papa. Jews would never use this word to address God back then or even today. It's a term of endearment. It's a term of tenderness. It's a term that children would use for their dads. According to one scholar, to the Jewish mind, it would have been disrespectful and therefore inconceivable to address God with this familiar word. For Jesus to venture to take this step was something new and unheard of. He spoke to God like a child to its father, simply, inwardly, confidently. Jesus' use of Abba in addressing God reveals the heart of his relationship with God. Jesus uses this word, and it's incredible. I mean, in the Garden of Gethsemane, in that place where literally blood was dripping from his sweat as he cried out just hours before the cross, he cried out, Abba, Father. Jesus cries out to the Father, a cry for help, a cry of love, a cry of endearment, a cry of intimacy. Oh, fellow Christian, here's what's, here's what's mind-blowing. We have that same relationship with the Father. Galatians 4, 6 says, because you are sons, Galatian church, Redeemer church, and because you are sons, you Christians, all of you, all of us, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Isn't this wonderful? Jesus, through the Spirit has given us this unique name for God, this unique relationship with God. I mean, it's, it's astounding. Abba, Father, becomes our natural cry to God. Now, many have never known a meaningful relationship with their earthly father, but God offers his soul-satisfying fatherhood to all who would come to him, to all who would repent of their sin and look to Jesus for salvation. 
I mean, consider some of the privileges of sonship. Security, because we're adopted. We no longer fear. We're sons of God. We can't lose this relationship. In a world full of rejection, maybe rejection from a boss, an extended family member, a classmate, we can all fill in the blank how we in this life have faced rejection. Of course, no earthly relationship can provide ultimate security, but God can. God does. Authority, we're no longer slaves but sons. We're not servants, but we're children of God. Intimacy, we can cry out to God, Abba, Father. Yes, God is transcendent, creator of all, but God is also imminent. God is with us. I loved Dr. TJ's prayer earlier to the Father, to the Son, to the Spirit, this triune prayer. We have a relationship with the triune God. Friends, we can address the creator of the universe as Father, the maker of all things, the maker of heaven, the maker of earth, the Lord over all, the maker of all, the creator of of all, the ruler of all, the one who made us, the one who created us, we can call him dad, we can call him father. I mean, friends, just think about this for a moment. It's outrageous. God has adopted us. He is our father. If you had a bad earthly father, He's the complete opposite. If you had or have a good earthly father, well, then your earthly father is just a taste, it's just a type, just a pointer to our heavenly father who's one million times better. Christian, you have intimacy with the ruler over everything and assurance. Look at verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. As one of my seminary professors once said, I know I'm a child of God, not just because the Bible tells me so. And the Bible does. The Bible tells us so even in our passage this morning. The Bible tells us so. But my professor says, not just because the Bible tells me so do I have assurance, but because the Spirit convinces me so. The Holy Spirit, Paul is saying, testifies with our human spirit. There's a feeling inside of us as a Christian that we're God's children. There's a comfort. There's an assurance. There's a help. But it gets even better. Look at verse 17, the last verse of our text this morning. And if children, so this is us again, Christians, and if children, then heirs, Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. First part of that verse, we get everything Jesus has. 
Right now, our salvation is an already not yet salvation. We enjoy it. We're saved. We're secure. But it's not fully realized yet. But what Christ has done and what Christ has now We will also, what Christ has now, we will also one day experience. And we will reign with him one day. And through our identification with him, we stand to inherit as co-heirs everything due him. We're already children, but we look forward to that day. When on that day, As a heir of God and a co-heir with Christ, we will receive the fullness of that inheritance. Now, Dubai is great. I love Dubai, but do we want to spend eternity in Dubai? Even in February, with the nice weather, your home country, your favorite city in the world, nothing compares to the eternal city That's described at the end of Revelation and of which we will live in forever and ever. How about your body? Do you want your body forever? The body you have right now? I sure don't. I want more hair, more muscles, less pain. But friends, we get to look forward to a day when we will have new and glorified bodies just like Jesus. Of course we don't want this city, this body, this life for all eternity. But there's a future hope. There's future grace. The best this life has to offer can only point to a better future. We're heirs of God fellow heirs with Christ. Yes, there's this eternal inheritance. And friends, the best part about that inheritance is God himself. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, this triune God that we get to be in his presence forever and ever and ever. He's the greatest portion of the inheritance to his children. So we get to be in his presence. And yet, the passage ends with a qualification. Did you notice that? The second half of verse 17, Paul's going to go on and touch on this more in the following verses and the following passage for next week. But the end of verse 17, all of this, all of this inheritance provided, provided, We suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Friends, this life isn't easy. This life's not going to be easy. Taking up our cross and following Jesus is hard. But the Bible teaches us that suffering is God's path to glory. It was for Paul. We know there's lists of the 
times he's been beaten and shipwrecked, faced danger from rivers and danger from robbers and danger from everywhere. It was for Jesus. He went to the cross. And so it will be for us in this fallen world. The world is full of hurt. As Christians, we may face rejection as we go about making disciples. We end every service and we tell you, go, Redeemer Church, go and make disciples of all nations. But friends, as we do that, we're going to face rejection. Some of us are going to face persecution. Some of you maybe have already faced severe persecution for going about making disciples. We may face ridicule for being a light in the workplace or in our schools. There will be physical, emotional, mental, and relational pain this side of heaven. This fallen world includes disease and death. But when we suffer for righteousness' sake, we can find joy in knowing that we are following Christ's path. We have an incredible future. And so I end with this question and then a parable. How will you then live? In light of being co-heirs with Christ, adopted by God the Father, how will you then live? As a slave or as a son? As a slave or as a co-heir with Christ? Well, many of us know this parable. It's often called the parable of the prodigal son. Sometimes called the parable of the lost sons. Because there are actually two sons in this parable. Jesus tells of it in Luke chapter 15. They represent two ways to approach God. In the parable, the younger son rejects his father and family, asks for his portion of the inheritance, which in those days was akin to wishing your father dead, cutting off all connection with your father. Well, the father gives the son the inheritance, and the son squanders it all on licentious living, finds himself with nothing, feeding pigs, yearning to eat for dinner what the pigs are eating. But when all is lost, this son comes to his senses, realizes what he has done, makes his way back home, recognizes his sin, repents of it before he gets there. He returns home, not expecting sonship, just hoping for a job and some food, some dinner. But what happens upon the son's return is stunning because while he was still a long way off, his dad starts running towards him. Now to think culturally and to think back then, adults didn't run. Running was for children. Running for adults, that was something to be ashamed of. That was embarrassing. And he would have had to 
pick up his cloak as he ran would have shown some of his skin. Again, embarrassing for the father to do this, but the dad ran. And to see his son while he was still a long way off, what does that mean? Well, it means dad was on the lookout. Dad was keeping his eyes open, and when he saw that dot on the horizon, he he was off to the races, sprinting after his son. And the son starts to speak, right? If you know this parable, the son has a speech. He's ready. The dad cuts him off. Dad stops in mid-speech because there's a party to plan. The father's son had returned. All seems well until we get to the very end of the parable. We find out there's another son, older son and elder brother. And when he sees dad throwing a party for his long-lost brother who squandered everything and has now returned. He's furious. He's angry. He's angry that his dad had never thrown him and his friends a party. They'd never killed a big fattened calf for him and his friends to eat. After all that he's done for his father, he didn't get a party. See, friends, the prodigal was now coming to the father. It's the son. That elder brother was treating his father all those years as a slave master or as a boss. Church, you can approach God either as a slave or as a son. And what's wonderful about our passage is that if we're followers of Christ and have the Spirit, we are sons. So let's live like it. We are sons. We've been adopted by God the Father. Let's live in light of that. Let's cry out, Abba, Father. We can pray to him. We can talk to him. We can trust him. We can be comforted by him. We have security, authority, intimacy, assurance now and forevermore. If you're here this morning, you don't yet know this father. You're not yet a son. Well, you can do so today, just like that prodigal son did on his own By himself, you today, from your seat right now. There's nothing to go out and do. That elder son had it all wrong. It wasn't about his deeds to earn a party from his dad. It's a heart change. So, friend, if you've never repented of your sins and believed in Jesus to save you, you can do that right now from your seat. And Jesus will save you, and you can cry out, Abba, Father. And Redeemer Church... As we go forth from here, let us be encouraged by our adoption. This adoption is final. Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life in permanent ink. There's nothing that can wash it away or erase it. God is our loving Abba Father now and forevermore. Let's pray. Well, Father, thank you for our adoption as sons. We are no longer slaves. We no longer have reason to fear the present or the future. Thank you for making us co-heirs with Christ. Let us fight sin now as we await future glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.